Amen. In his final book of the epic Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien tells the story of Sam and Frodo walking through thickest darkness. They're crossing through the gloom of Mordor to Mount Doom. Grief and fear have a stranglehold on their hearts. Seems they're stranded in a nightmare from which there's no escape. And the beautiful world that they once knew is disappearing like a fading dream. It's nighttime and the ever-loyal Sam is keeping watch while his friend Frodo is asleep. Sam looks into the night sky and he sees a single star above Mordor shining brightly like Venus. As he fixes his gaze on that star, Tolkien writes, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And with that comfort, Sam lies down next to his friend Frodo and sleeps peacefully through the night. And the next day, though, the journey is no easier, and he has to carry Frodo on his weary back. There's a new stamina in Sam's steps because he has seen a beauty that is far out of the reach of evil, and he knows there is hope. That's what Christians around the world are celebrating this morning. On Good Friday, Jesus was stripped of all his dignity. He was nailed up on a brutal cross of wood. He was exposed as the world's most miserable offender. He became the vilest of the vile, the stench and stigma of all humanity's evil was concentrated on him. He was despised and rejected by men and accursed and condemned by God. Heaven turned out the lights. Darkness descended on the land in the middle of the day as Jesus agonized alone under the awful weight of sin. The whole point of crucifixion is to dehumanize its victim, to treat him as despicable, unmentionable, to eradicate his name and expunge his memory from the face of the earth. If it were not for what we celebrate this morning, the name of Jesus of Nazareth would have become like one who never existed. It would have been erased. It would have been banished from the record of human history like countless other victims of Rome's cruel Condemnation. But the story does not end in the darkness of Friday. From Friday evening until Sunday morning, the cold and lifeless corpse of Jesus rested in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, motionless. Just like God rested on the seventh day after he had completed his work of creation. So now the Lord of glory rests in his tomb after completing his work that ushers in a new creation. His body was bound in 70 pounds of linens and spices. 
The entrance to the tomb was sealed by a heavy stone weighing over 2,000 pounds and then rolled down a decline inside a groove to secure, making sure no one could go in or out. A guard thought to be anywhere from 4 to 30 Roman soldiers is stationed outside. Early in the morning, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrived to see the tomb where the body of Jesus was laid. Suddenly, there's a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven. It comes and it rolls back the stone and sits on it. His appearance is like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and the guards are trembling for fear and become like dead men. They're so afraid. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Listen carefully. That stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. That stone was rolled away to let us in. To see the evidence that death could not hold the Lord of glory in that tomb. Jesus triumphed over death. He emerged victorious from that tomb all on his own strength. And the angel opened the grave so that anyone who desired could go and see that the tomb was empty. That darkness could not prevail over the light of the world. That bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. So we, with Christians all around the world today, say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen. And if you're here this morning visiting us, we're so glad that you've joined us today, and I welcome you warmly. My name is David Sunday. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that we've all gathered together on this Easter Sunday to celebrate the fact that the shadow of death is only a small and passing thing. There is a light, and there is a high beauty forever beyond its reach We live in a world that's broken, and we feel the shadows deepen. But we know that all the dark will not stop the light from getting through because Jesus has triumphed over death, and he's going to make all things new. And I want us to experience the transforming power of the resurrection in Jesus, of Jesus. I want to experience it in my own life, and I want you to experience the transforming power of Jesus' resurrection. And in order for us to experience the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, we need to believe two things. We need to believe that it is true, that it actually happened. But in addition to that, we also need to believe that everything that is true of Jesus is also true of us. So let's read a beautiful passage together from the Bible. This is from a letter that one of the early Christian leaders named Paul wrote to a group of believers, a church in a city called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. 
You'll find this in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Paul had been transformed by his encounter with the risen Christ and he wants the believers in the church in Colossae to experience a similar transformation in their lives so that the light and the beauty of Jesus will shine through them to their community and that others will be transformed as well. And the words that Paul writes in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 might just be the most important words of counsel that he ever gives to a group of believers. If we could be gripped by and held by the realities of which Paul speaks in these verses, it would, it would be impossible for us not to be transformed by the message of Easter, not just today, but every day of our lives and for all eternity. So let's worship and let's expect God to do things in our lives as we hear his word to us this morning. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4 says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What those verses are telling us is that you can live a life that is radically transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. How? By believing that it is true, not a made-up story, not a myth, but a fact of history. But it takes more than simply acknowledging the historical veracity of the resurrection. You have to go deeper than that. You have to personalize it. And that's what this passage is designed to help us do. The main point of this passage is that you will experience the transforming power of Jesus' resurrection life when you believe that whatever is true of Jesus is true also of those who belong to and who believe in Jesus. When you believe that whatever is true of Jesus is true also of those who believe in Jesus, that's when the transforming power of the resurrection starts to take hold of you. So let's consider, first of all, what is true of Jesus. Believe what is true of Jesus. And there are four things that stand out as true about Jesus in these verses. We see his preeminence, his position, his posture, and his promised return. First, Jesus is preeminent. We are told in verse 1 where Christ is, and we're just simply told he is above. <laughs> That's where he is. He's above. Above all earthly powers, above all threats of men, above all possibility of mutiny, above all the planets and all the stars and all the galaxies in the universe. He is above all things because he is the maker of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forever, God, he reigns. His is the kingdom. His is the glory. His is the name above all names. Christ is above all. And here, the apostle is speaking not of Christ in his pre-incarnate state, not of Christ before he came down to earth and became one of us, but of Christ who lived in our place and who died the death we deserve to die, but who triumphed over the grave and now has ascended as the God-man bringing our humanity into the realm of the divine. He is above all. And we see in this passage that he holds an exalted position. He is, we see at the end of verse 1, at the right hand of God. And whoever sits at the right hand of a king shares in his authority. He is at the right hand of God, as the Apostle Peter says, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. He is not below God. He is not above God. But he is one in fellowship and in purpose and in dignity and authority with God. That's his position. And then notice his posture. He is seated, we see in verse 1, at the right hand of God. Now, when Stephen the martyr died, Jesus stood up to receive him into his heavenly glory, to welcome him. But his normal position now is seated at the right hand of God, not standing to receive orders, nor bowing to show submission, but seated as one who has finished his great and decisive work of salvation. As the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen. When Jesus shouted, it is finished from the cross, he means that everything that he needed to do to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and to relocate us in the kingdom of love and to redeem us from the penalty and power and presence of our sins, everything that needed to be done in order for that to happen, he did. He finished. Every other religion in this world is spelled D-O, do. There's something you need to do. It's about following someone's teaching, whether it's Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. But Christianity isn't spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. It's vitally important that we follow Jesus' teachings, but we're not saved by following his teachings. We are saved by trusting in who he is and in what he has done for us. We are saved by trusting that Jesus, the bread of life, hungered that we might be filled, 
That Jesus, the fountain of life, was thirsty that we might be satisfied. That Jesus, the power of God, grew weak that we might be strong. That Jesus, the truth, was accused of false witnesses that we might be declared righteous. That Jesus was the healer, the healer was wounded that we might be restored. That Jesus, the very source of life, died that we might live. In the words of Trevin Wax, that's what saves us. It's trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done. And now he is seated at the right hand of God because he's fulfilled all the work he came down to earth to do for us and for our salvation. Isn't that good news? But it gets better. As we see in verse 4, he will come again. Paul points our gaze to a time on the horizon when Christ appears in glory. So there's coming a day when the Savior who is above all things, who is at the right hand of the Father, seated there, is going to come again to bring the beauty and perfection of heaven down to earth. He's going to fill this world with the holiness and the happiness of heaven. The glory that fills Jesus right now in heaven is going to fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. And the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. And all creation will rejoice because Jesus is going to come and heal this broken world and make all things new. That's what's true of Jesus, according to these amazing verses. He's above all things. He's at the right hand of God. He's seated in the satisfaction of accomplishing his finished work. He's waiting for the day when he will appear, the firstborn of the new creation, and everything that's sad will come untrue and all that's broken will be healed. That's amazing. But what I'm going to tell you next is equally amazing if the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to believe it, to see it, to take it in to personalize it. Not only is all of these, are all of these things true of Jesus, but also the second thing we see is that what is true of Jesus is true also for those who belong to Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus has died to sin once for all. Can sin demand any further payment from Jesus? No. As we heard on Good Friday, he took the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands and he canceled it. He paid it in full. Look at what that means for everyone who believes in Jesus at the beginning of verse 3. What does it say about us there? It says, you have died. When Jesus died, you, believer, died with him. When he was buried, you, believer, were buried with him. The worst thing that could happen to you has already taken place. You have died. Your death is behind you. Which means sin has no claim on you anymore. Sin cannot condemn you because your debt has been paid in full. Sin cannot make you obey its passions because you have died to sin. 
And that transforms how we live when you realize I have died. For instance, there are certain foods that I really love, but eating too much of them is not good for me. I mean, if you brought me French vanilla, French vanilla dark chocolate chip ice cream from Graham's on 3rd Street, there's no way I'm going to resist it. If you made me fresh popcorn on the stove, smothered in butter, and you brought it to me and I could smell that popcorn and that butter, there's no way I'm not going to eat it unless I'm a corpse lying in a coffin. Then you can bring me all the ice cream and all the popcorn in the world and I'll be dead to it. And that is what's true of us spiritually now. Sin has no claim on us. It has no appeal. It has no power over us because we have died. We have died with Christ. But that's not all that's true of us. Just as Jesus didn't stay in the grave, neither have we. Look at the beginning of verse 1. What does it say there? You, believer, have been raised with Christ. It doesn't say you will be resurrected in the future, although that is gloriously true. Instead, Paul is focusing on a reality that has already taken place, something he described back in chapter 2, where it says in verse 12, that we have been buried with him in baptism, in which... You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's a little phrase in verse 12 of chapter 2 that describes how this all happened. It is through faith in the powerful working of God. Through faith in the powerful working of God in Christ, you, believer, have died and you have been raised now to newness of life, which means, in the words of Tim Keller, that Christians should live as if they had died and gone to heaven and come back. Think about what difference that would make in your life if you actually thought about that a little bit more this week. Christians should live as if they had died and gone to heaven and come back. This is your identity if you're a Christian. You have died, you have been raised with Christ, and now you have new life. The same resurrection life that flows through Jesus now flows through you. And we see that in the second half of verse 3. What does it say there? Believer, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Which means that the new life that you have in Jesus, it's absolutely secure. Just as secure as the union between Christ and his Father is the security of the new life that you have in Christ. Believer, you could no, long, no more be cut off from the new life you have in Christ than Jesus could be severed from his Father. It won't happen. Because Christ is protecting you. He will hold you fast. God has you in his safe keeping. But notice that this new life is hidden right now. The world cannot see the true glory of who a Christian really is. You can't even see it yourself. The true you, 
The you whose life is now in Christ is so much more glorious than you can possibly see. Right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. But we've passed from death into life. Our true life is not here on earth, but there in heaven, wonderfully and inextricably and eternally bound up with Jesus himself, who reigns there in heaven and who will one day appear here again on earth. But we cannot yet see the glory of all that we have in Christ. We need our eyes to be open to these glorious realities. As John Piper puts it, Oh, that God would grant you to see that what you can't see is more glorious than all you can see. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But this hiddenness won't last forever. Look at the last thing it tells us about ourselves in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. And I love that phrase, Christ, who is your life. It really challenges me. <clears throat> is there anything in my life right now besides Jesus, which if I were to lose it, I would feel like I don't have a life anymore? Is there anything like that for you? If you lost your job or your position at work, would you feel like, I don't have a life anymore? If you lost the esteem of people or popularity, if you went unnoticed, unsought after, would you feel like, I don't have a life anymore? If you lost your health, I mean, how many people say, being healthy is everything? <laughs> right. If you lost your success, your financial security, if you lost your spouse or your children or your best friend, if any of those things or if all of those things were taken from you, would you still have a life? The believer in Jesus says, yes, I would because you are my life. Oh, precious Christ. A Christian is someone who's decided, I don't need anything more than Jesus. There are many things in this life that I cherish and enjoy and love. There are many things in this life that I will lament to lose. But you can take them all as long as you give me Jesus. You see, if we need Jesus plus anything else in order to really have life, what that really means is that Jesus isn't, is worth nothing to us. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But for a Christian, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because he is our life. And when Christ appears, all the world will see his glory. And we also will share in his glory when we see him face to face. That's what Paul's saying in verse 4. The glory of his resurrection life will so fill us with splendor that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And all the universe will marvel at the glory of Christ and of his people. That's the future that awaits us. 
So we've seen some glorious realities that are true for Christ. And God's word is telling us they're also true for everyone who believes in Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His glorious life is our life. His return in glory will be our glory. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to believe and to treasure Christ in order for these things to start having their transformational effect in us. I can imagine most of us in this room are responding to these realities in one of two ways. Some of us are responding right now with disbelief. And that's how many respond to the message of Easter. It's just too hard to believe. After all, we can walk through lots of cemeteries and we're not going to see any dead people coming out of their graves. This just doesn't correspond with our daily experience. So many people hear this story of Jesus and his resurrection, they think that's a nice metaphor, but it must be a made-up story. I just can't believe that it's true. And I certainly can't fathom how his death and resurrection become my death and my resurrection and how his life becomes my life. So Easter comes and Easter goes, and it really makes no lasting difference in our lives. And if that's where you're at today, let me just tell you how grateful I am that you came to church this Sunday. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you came because a friend invited you or because your parents wanted you to come. Or maybe you came because it's your tradition to come to church on Easter. And whatever your reason for being here, this church opens wide her arms and says, oh, we're glad. We're glad you've come. And you can bring your questions. And you can bring your doubts, no matter how scathing, Because Christianity can handle those questions and those doubts. Could I just ask you to consider something this morning? Even if you're not sure if the resurrection is true, is there anything you've heard today in the sermon or in the songs or in the prayers that's making you wish that it were true? The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy said, there's a question that lies in the soul of every person. If you cannot find an answer to this question, your life becomes unbearable. He he describes it like this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every person, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed like this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Think about that. Is there any meaning in your life that death will not destroy? The Bible takes this question seriously. It doesn't say that's a dumb question. Just go on and live your life. No, the Bible gives us a compelling, wonderful answer. It says Jesus is risen from the dead. And everyone who believes in him will share in his resurrection life forever 
And so the Bible says, if the resurrection isn't true, then nothing else matters. It's all a waste. But if the resurrection is true, then nothing matters more than this. If you're finding in yourself a desire to know more about Jesus this morning, if you're not sure it's true, but you're starting to wish that it were true, that's because the light and the high beauty that shines in heaven where Christ lives is shining a beam into your heart right now. And my encouragement to you is keep letting the light in. The good news is faith isn't something you have to manufacture. Faith is a gift from God. And faith isn't a leap into the dark. Faith is putting your trust in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for you. And you might not feel like a believer right now, but Jesus is real. And Jesus is alive. And Jesus knows your name. And Jesus knows your need. And could it be that the real reason you're here this morning is because the living Jesus is seeking you? Would you consider talking to him this morning and saying, Jesus, if you're alive, I want to know you. Please show me if it's really true. Give me faith to trust in you. The second response that I can imagine many of us are feeling today is, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's where I'm at this morning. I believe that all these things are true of Jesus, and I believe that I've died and I've been raised with him, and that he is my life, and that because he lives, I can face tomorrow, and that when he appears, I also will appear with him in glory. I believe this. And so do many of you. But you've got bills to pay and you've got relationship problems to resolve and you've got work that must be done. You've got temptations that entice you and sins that ensnare you and amusements that distract you and hurts that wound you and pains and illnesses that weary you. And often these are the realities that consume you from the moment you wake until you lay your head on your pillow at night. So let me ask you, dear believer, Imagine, for a moment, that you knew beyond a shadow of doubt that this would be the week when you meet the risen Lord, Jesus, face to face. What if you knew that one day, this very week, you will wake up to an eternal holiday in a new creation, and your lungs will be filled with the air of that better country, and your sorrow and your signs will all flee away. And you will see him as he is and be like him in his glory. And so you shall always be with the Lord. What if this were the week when all the realities we're waiting for become so real that we can touch them and taste them and feel them with our five senses? What if you knew 
that before this week is over, you'd be living in a world where there is no partisan politics, no school shootings, no terrorism, no sexual confusion or perversion, no substance abuse, no depression, no domestic abuse. What if this were our final Easter in this building and next year we were going to meet together to feast in the new Jerusalem? In a world where Jesus is all the glory and the light and the beauty. A world where the harsh realities of earth are swallowed up by the holy and happy realities of heaven. If you knew that you'd soon be living in such a world, wouldn't it change what you're seeking after today? Wouldn't you start living right now in the light of what you knew would be true very soon? Wouldn't you want your life here to reflect what it will be like there with Christ in glory? That's what this passage is calling us to do. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why not start living today in light of our eternally bright tomorrow? Why not overlook today's disappointments in pursuit of tomorrow's prize? Why not adjust our outlook and our moods and our conduct to the realities of the life we have right now in Christ above? Let everything you do and think be filtered through this mindset. This is ultimate reality. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And if you believe in him, you have died. You have been raised. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And he's alive right now so that you can begin your day with Jesus and you can spend your day with Jesus and you can think about Jesus and walk with Jesus and know him truly. So as the old Puritan John Owen said, our hope is that ere long we shall be ever with him. And if so, it is certainly our wisdom and duty to be here with him as much as we can. Let's pray together.